This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramatoshaloni land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Devin, I'm really excited about our conversation this evening. Hello, good evening. Thanks for having me and, and doing this. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to sort of dive in uh, pretty broadly so that we can kind of really go into some of um, the places that um, maybe you want to go this evening around, um, you know, the topics that you explore in your book. And I'm curious if you can just start us out in talking about what is the laziness lie that you discuss in, in your book? Sure. Yeah. So um, the laziness lie is a term that I put uh, on this pretty pervasive cultural belief system um, that has its roots in Puritanism and white supremacy in the U.S., but it's kind of spread everywhere and it's tainted not just our approach to work, but our view of so many things, our boundaries, our ability to listen to our bodies, all of these different pervasive problems and just kind of moralizing uh, work. And it has uh, three major tenets. And uh, the first one is that your worth is defined by your productivity. The second uh, tenet is that you can't trust your needs, your limitations, any feelings that tell you that you need to slow down or change course. And then the third tenet is that there's always more that you could be doing. And like I said, it's not just work necessarily, but it's uh, does your body look the correct way? Are do you have you know Are you presenting yourself in a professional enough way? Uh, are you doing enough activism? Pretty much any realm of life, uh, you can be made to feel lazy um, about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about it in all these different areas of life because sometimes when we're talking about productivity, I mean, I know my mind first goes to work right? Am I being productive in my work? But there's all these other ways in which it plays out in in our lives. And I'm wondering if you want to talk about that a little bit more, kind of how that, what that looks like. Sure. So one thing that I like to, to stress and encourage people to think about is if you, if you live under a worldview that says work uh, and productivity makes you a good person, taking a lot of things on and achieving a lot of good things makes you a good person, and, uh, and it's immoral to be lazy, Think about how that really distorts your relationship to consent and your ability to say no to really anything. We're really starting with a cultural frame that saying yes to something is morally superior to saying no, and that uh, stopping something, not being able to do something, not wanting to do something is something that you kind of have to justify. Um, So that really phrase, more than just sexual consent, which normally when we talk about consent, that's the forefront in people's minds, but uh, your commitments to people that you're in relationships with, your commitment to family members and expectations that they place on you, that uh, some of them might be things that don't actually align with your values and who you really are and who you want to be. Um, And like I said, activism, over committing to the point of burnout 
or um, I think this is even really closely tied to the problem of performative activism, that people want to be good, they want to be virtuous, they want to satisfy that nagging impulse in the back of their mind that they're not doing enough to solve these huge pressing problems. And so they reach for the first available thing that they can do without kind of thinking about, is this something that the group that I'm advocating for actually wants? Is this a sustainable commitment? Um, you know, is this something that I can really follow through with and that's going to be good for me as well as the causes and the communities that I'm trying to serve? Um, so it's really pervasive. Um, I talk in the book also about things like parenting guilt. I think that's a major battleground where no matter what you do, you're going to be criticized and you f- face so much um, real and internalized um, social judgment that you're not checking off all of these boxes and scheduling all these activities, training your kid to have all of these various skills. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of just spirals out from there. Pretty much any relationship that we have to other people or to our own bodies and minds, it has this cloud hanging over it of don't say no, don't you know, say you don't feel like doing something, say yes, take it on. And if not, why not? What's wrong with you? That kind of thing. Right. Like I can really see that there's this, uh, it's an acculturation and a lot of it has to do with some of like our un, un, unexamined assumptions around who we need to be, what we have to say yes to, what we can say no to or can't say no to, and sort of just going along with whatever we see is this, it, it's, I mean, I, the way in which you present it is like it's a cultural norm that has been infused in so many different ways that we're, we're pretty much unaware that this has been a norm, this is a norm that's been, um, you know, communicated to us. And you do talk, you do talk a little bit about, or a lot in your book around ways in which we can become aware of the laziness lie, um, you know, just in our own self-examination process and some of the things that we can, we can do, which I really appreciate that because, um, you know, when, when there is this uh, enculturation around a specific idea or way of being, sometimes if we're given um, this information and we go, well, I don't now what do I do with this? Right. What do I, how do I, how do I work? How do I work with this? Um, and so there's sort of this grounding in like, um, in narrative and personal story. And I'm curious, and maybe we'll get back, we'll get over to some of that a little bit later in the interview, but I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, when you started to examine this, um, this idea of laziness and what it meant, you know, in, in, in your life and, and in the lives of people that you were seeing around you, um, what was that like for you to really start going into this, this topic and to uncover some of the things that you've already talked about in, in just these few minutes of the beginning of our, our time together? Yeah, that's a question that I don't think I've been asked before about this. Um, it's heavy. Um, the, the way that this book came into being was that I initially wrote an essay called Laziness Does Not Exist that was really just focused on students and how unfair it seemed to me that um, a lot of professors that I had bumped into at various places where I taught over the years would just write off their students as lazy or kind of just dismiss um, students assuming that they were faking uh, if they said that a grandpa grandparent died or they were sick, you know, this just base assumption that students were not taking class seriously and weren't trying hard enough. And it was so counter to my own experience from when I was a student and all of the stories I was hearing from these students, um, because a lot of them would open up to me about just 
the incredible number of things that they were juggling in their life and coping with. Um, so I wrote an essay about that. And the reaction that I got from that essay and the number of personal stories that people sent to me is what kind of made me start to realize just how pervasive this problem is, or at least that um, that it was something that I wanted to speak to even further. So it's been kind of this, uh, that essay I wrote in 2018. And um, so I've been thinking about this stuff for a few years now. And pretty much that whole time, it's just think, it's just hearing all these stories from people who they've internalized so much guilt from parents who told them that they were inadequate because they had, you know, executive functioning challenges because they're depressed or have, they have ADHD or trauma or, or whatever else. Um, people who are in an industry where and this is most industries, frankly, they're set up in a way that's just not sustainable. They have expectations that are just not, even if we were going by the most cold-blooded productivity research, you wouldn't design workdays this way. And yet this is how most workdays are designed. And and, pe- <laughs> and people are are blaming themselves when they can't sustain, you know, an 80-hour workday um, and have to drop out of her career. Um, so, it's it's heavy. It, it was especially heavy to hear a lot of people's stories of burnout. And and also in writing this book, I feel really heavily the tension between I want to give people practical advice for how they can take better stock of this stuff in their own lives. And I'm also acutely aware that this is a white supremacy problem. This is a capitalism problem. This is an imperialism problem. And an individual person can't solve it. And we've had a lot of self-help books in the world that are about, you know, here's set some good work-life boundaries. Uh, and it's not enough. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a heavy thing to, to carry and to think about how to navigate um, responsibly. Well, I really imagine too, as a social psychologist too, it's like, I mean, you really look at the individual in relationship. And so I can see how, like, even from the, the perspective I mean, I imagine the perspective that you took in in doing your research and in writing this that, you know, I mean, you thought about the various different webs and circles and intersections that, you know, people are are living within and how this this uh, laziness lie affects them and their lives. And um, and I'm curious if you want to speak more to that around, you know, how privilege does play into the laziness lie and and what people can actually do about it as a result. Yeah. Um, it's so striking and it's I don't think it comes as a surprise to pretty much anyone who probably who's who's here or watching. If they're here for this conversation, they're probably not surprised to hear it. But the people that I spoke to in the book that were able to set boundaries or really walk away from a toxic work environment were almost always people who had an economic cushion or access to family who could kind of, they could live with to weather the storm, some amount of privilege to make it possible for them to say no uh, in a economic system and a culture where just, you know, giving your life to your work is something that's really normalized and often required just to get by. Um, so, yeah, that's something where I, I try to encourage people who are reading the book, knowing that this book is is listed as self-help and it's going to reach a pretty wide audience, including people who maybe aren't uh, economically as far left as I am on these things, to kind of think about, okay, clearly these are really systemic problems. And I've been taught not only to fear laziness in myself, 
but to look at other people who are marginalized as lazy. So can I rethink the person on the corner who's asking for money? Can I rethink how I feel about social welfare programs? Or, you know, maybe for a lot of people think for the first time about disability benefits and how hard those are to navigate or what life's actually like when you're homeless, you know? Um, And, and I go back and forth on, on how successful or like whether I took it far enough in the book or, right. or you know, like how to, how to thread that needle of getting people on board who maybe aren't fully, you know, let's say in favor of universal basic income or some solution like that yet and slowly kind of moving the tide so that people realize, okay, yes, I'm a lawyer and I'm working 80 hour weeks and I feel horrible about my body and I feel like I never have enough time for my kids, but also um, I might eventually be able to retire I might be able to eventually um, set some limits and who are the other people that don't have that power and how can I take steps and support policies that'll help all of us. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I really appreciate that perspective because I think it's really important for us as individuals, especially, you know, if we're sitting in a place of privilege to be able to recognize the steps that we can take for ourselves as well as the things that we can do to support those who maybe aren't in the same position as we are, you know, and to, I mean, I like that you bookend your, your book with that story or, or around, you know, the, the mom, I mean, it's a really classic example of like the mom who, you know, um, tells their kid not to give money to the homeless person because, you know, all the various different reasons that you list and what they're going to do with the money. But the thing is, is that we we don't really know their individual situation. And so some of what I'm also hearing you kind of say is it's like, and even in your example around your students is that we have these assumptions based on people's actions and, and where they might sit. But there's something really important about actually getting to know what it is, what's what's going on with them. And um, you you speak to this, and I'm wondering if you can talk about this a little bit more around how this, you know, how laziness can actually be an indicator of something else. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe I'll go with one example from the book of this student who um, tweeted at me after I'd written the essay, Laziness Does Does Not Exist. And he said, listen, I'm lazy. I'm actually lazy. <laughs> Which this is the thing that happens. People very, very rarely come to me and say, oh, what about my brother-in-law? He's so lazy. Or like, oh, what about my coworker? They're so lazy. It's almost always, no, listen, I'm lazy. And uh, this, this college student, he kind of said, when I'm depressed, I don't get anything done. I just lay in my bed and I'm completely like useless and I don't get anything done. And also when I was in high school, me and my friends, we would make kind of a show of procrastinating on papers. And I think some people, it really was that they just wanted to stick it to the school that they would, you know, do their homework on the bus. Like, how could you not call that laziness? Um, So for the first thing that he brought up, it was kind of heartbreaking that he knew he had depression and he still didn't think that that was enough of a context to absolve him of being lazy. So, you know, uh, in the book, I kind of break down just let's really talk about physiologically and psychologically what happens when you're depressed. Your sleep is less deep and less restful. You do need more hours of sleep because your sleep quality is poorer. Your thinking is, your ability to think is slowed down and impaired. Um, Your ability to sequence tasks is impaired. Um, You are marshalling a lot of cognitive resources towards staying alive. 
And it's this incredibly difficult battle. And I think, I hope most of us wouldn't call someone who's on chemotherapy fighting cancer lazy. I think that still happens. And certainly a lot of people with physical disabilities get called lazy. Um, But the level that people with invisible illnesses and mental illnesses have it is just so far behind um, that that even someone who's acutely suffering from it uh, wasn't giving himself credit for how hard he was fighting to stay alive. Um, And then to go with the more easy to demonize example of some teens who were kind of just screwing off in class, it just made me think about when I was a teenager and how little control I had in the world and how you are developing personhood and you have very little agency, very little control over how you spend your time and you're being condescended to in ways that feel like you know, I'm an adult person, like you, you feel like you are, and you're right. still being, you're still being hampered in. <laughs> yeah. So, so stealing free time where you can get it and screwing off on rules that you don't agree with, that you are not free to break out of because you're stuck going to school. That to me seems very logical and it's not a moral failure. It's someone for the first time in their life getting to set their own priorities and we might not agree with those priorities. You know, if we're that kid's parent, we might say, please do your homework. <laughs> like, this, will pay off. this will pay off in the long run, I promise. But, you know, a person setting goals and putting their energy towards the things that matter to them and withdrawing energy from the things that don't matter to them, that's not laziness. That's a person behaving very rationally. Again, we might disagree with it, but it's not laziness. Right, exactly. I mean, it's really about kind of how others are are then looking at those particular behaviors or ways of reacting or responding to certain requests or or demands from others because if somebody doesn't agree with it you know um and they say they say no if if the the norm is that well if you say no to this then it means you don't care you're lazy or whatever it is then you know, I mean, I don't, I wonder if you could speak to that, like, you know, what someone who doesn't subscribe to this, or, you know, let's say they, they read your book and they say, yeah, I, I actually really agree that this laziness idea is a, is a lie and I don't want to adhere to it anymore, but yet they're still in uh, circles where if they start to change their behaviors, they might be looked upon um, not not in the same light. And so I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions around what someone might do in that particular scenario. You know, how, how does somebody start to, I guess, let me rephrase that. Like, how does somebody start to change their internal relationship to the laziness lie? And then when that happens, you know, how do they then um, shift their relationship to their external relationships in regard to the laziness lie? Yeah, so... Um... As I kind of alluded to, I think it does come down to taking stock of your values and then taking stock of how does my day or the life that I've built and in many ways been forced to build out of necessity um, line up or fail to line up with those values. So there's a variety of different kind of questions and activities um, sprinkled throughout to kind of help think about that. But fundamentally, it's looking at, okay, if I really wanted to focus my life on upholding, you know, three values, what would those things be? Would it be family? Would it be equality, creativity, making money? What are the things that truly drive me and make me feel alive? And then how am I actually spending my day? Um, And what are the goals that I set out to meet that I, that I don't meet? And 
how do I feel about those? What are the things that I don't get done that I can kind of just look at the fact that I routinely don't do them and just say, I'm going to take this as data. Maybe this thing doesn't actually matter to me. I've just been told that it should matter to me. Um, and so I can let it go. Um, so that might be something like exercising every day. You know, you put it on your calendar, you set this intention and you don't get to it because you're exhausted or you want to socialize or play a video game or whatever it is. Um, and maybe if you don't actually see exercising every day as being important for your values, maybe you can just let let that go and just say, okay, this is now my video game hour every day. <laughs> right. Um, and... Conversely, if there's something that you're really setting out to do that you never find time for, and it really makes you notice this misstep and this gap between who you want to be and what your life is actually like, let's say spending time with your kids, um, instead of yelling at yourself for lacking willpower to cram all these things into this musket that is clearly too tight, asking yourself, what am I going to get rid of? Who am I going to disappoint? Um, and that brings me to the next piece in the second part of your question, which is how do you socially begin to do these things? And so I do talk about, you know, pick someone every week that you're going to disappoint. Uh, that was a useful way of thinking about it and doing it for me because I was so afraid of people being unhappy with me and disappointed in me and using other people's emotions too much as a guideline for how I was supposed to conduct myself uh, instead of listening to my own values. So for me, it was very useful to set a goal of, okay, at least once a week, someone's going to ask me for something and I'm going to let them down. And it will be good practice for me from just even an emotional regulation perspective to recognize this person asked for something. My gut says I should say yes. I'm going to say no. And I'm going to sit with that distress and the world's not going to end. <laughs> and now I'm not going to resent this person later, which is yeah. what I would have done otherwise. Or I would have like lied to explain why I couldn't do the thing or whatever. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, I think looking at really deeply ingrained societal rules and recognizing, of course, everyone around you is influenced by this stuff. So yes, if you start dressing differently, people are going to sometimes go, oh, that doesn't look professional or like, oh, you look so tired, you know, like you're going to get these little nudges and every person kind of has to gauge for themselves what they can get away with saying no to, what they can get away with letting drop. And of course, this goes back to the privilege issue. Um where it's very easy for me as a professor to say, well, I'm not going to dress up at work. It doesn't matter. It's actually better if we're not, we don't have that pretense or, you know, it's very easy for me to say that and not everyone can do that. Um, but within the lines that you are in, um, trusting your own perception of the world that you're in, what can you release that you're just going through the motions because you're afraid of disappointing people um, that you can just give yourself permission to go ahead and disappoint them or not meet that standard anymore? I like that. And I, I totally resonate with um, your example of, you know, attuning to other people's emotions and feeling their disappointment or whatever when you say you say no. So I can really um, understand how difficult that can be. And I like that idea of doing it in a way that's, um, you know, slow, where it's kind of like a titration, a, a way of sort of easing into a different way of being rather than thinking that you have to just, you know, 
once you once you agree, you know, if someone were to read your book and then go, yeah, I completely agree with this. I'm going to change my whole life right now. That that's maybe not the best way to go about it. That it's something that takes time and it takes work to really kind of reauthor your own understanding of your relationship to the the laziness lie and and you know how you've sort of constructed your life. Um, according to, you know, productivity and, and doing more and feeling like you have to just continue to produce. Right. This is another thing that you like, don't be a perfectionist about, right? Like it would be, (laughs) it's like you, I still, you know, and I still do it too. I apply the logic of like, oh, I'm going to be the best at fighting the laziness lie, which what, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this is a long process and, um, and it's not your fault that you've internalized this stuff. It's not your fault that these expectations have been placed upon you. And one of the big failures of a lot of pop psychology and self-help and that writing um, is presenting individual solutions where you just need to be more assertive and as an individual overcome these structural problems. And that's just not how that stuff works. Um, I do want to give people kind of a life raft and some tools for okay, you're in a really unfair, turbulent situation. Here are some things you can hold on to and use um, to make it more tenable for you. But it's not like, okay, today's the day I fundamentally change who I am in every way and have amazing willpower and stop everyone and I'm going to feel bad and like I'm betraying myself if I still succumb to this stuff because we all all do. Right. Well, and I I mean, I think what you're also saying too is it's like we we can't apply – the same patterns that produced the the laziness lie to unravel them, right? It's really about changing relationships to and changing patterns to and really looking at um, internal values. I mean, I know from like a developmental perspective, you know, when we're in like our 20s to late 20s, early 30s, we really go through this process of, you know, developing our own internal compass to, you know, values and moral systems and things like that. But if we've adopted this, this moral system of, of productivity is, is related to your worth, that it, it takes time to um, repattern and to rework not just the internal relationship to those morals and values, but a, a repatterning of our behaviors and the ways in which we relate to the world. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, it, I can, I can really see though, how it would be really easy in one regard to just apply the same sort of ideas around productivity to the laziness lie. Like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to undo the laziness lie. And <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah. And we, and I see it a lot in like activist spaces too. And a lot of people have written about this. Adrian Marie Brown is probably the like best known, uh, who wrote pleasure activism person talking about this, but this idea that like a, 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 a practice of like trying to liberate people that's still rooted in perfectionism, get everything done, take everything on as an individual, policing individuals for are you doing enough for the cause? Like that's still the same mindset of uh, of the laziness lie, capitalism, white supremacy, all of those things that are just saying individuals need to be good and virtuous instead of saying, how do we build a society that takes care of everyone? Um, and we stop, we throw the, are they a good, virtuous, hardworking person question completely off the table. Right, right. It's really a completely different frame and construction around how we value ourselves and how we value each other within our society. Um, 
I'm really curious if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, um, if we were to shift our perspectives, you know, away from, you know, this idea of productivity being, being our worth and, um, and really kind of take on your suggestions around the laziness lie, how we might practice self-care and, and wellness and what that might really look like for someone. Yeah, um, I think the place to start in answering that question is looking at how we think about and talk about self-care right now and how distorted it is. Um, I guess in some ways we're in a better place than we were. I, I can't remember when I first heard the term self-care, but I was into my 20s, you know, so it was something I was not familiar with up until that point. And so it's good that it's become a cultural conversation more. Um, it certainly had been researched for a few decades before I heard of it as, as a person, um, but it was mostly in the context of um, social workers, nurses, caregivers, and how do you keep people in these really emotionally turbulent um, professions like right. stable. Um, so so it's good that self-care has become a big conversation in the public landscape, but it's become very much a commodity, a thing that you schedule, a thing that you put on your to-do list, um, usually a thing that you buy, whether it's a bath bomb or a pedicure or something like that. Um, and it can also be something that you're supposed to kind of implicitly perform. So, um, especially a few years ago, Instagram was very bad in this regard. Lots of like bubble bath photos and photos of here's this art that I made. Here's this beautiful craft. Here's, you know, this beautiful makeup look I did and it's self-care, but it's also, it's also, um, something that I'm going to measure how well I'm doing based on how people receive it. Um, not that it's wrong to want to broadcast things to the world. I'm on social media constantly. Uh, so I, <laughs> so I, get, I get that it's a, you know, a double-edged sword. So, so at this point, the term has become such a commodity that I don't know how, we, how do we rework thinking of it as just, this isn't a thing that you earn. It isn't a thing that you set aside a little amount of time for. It's having a completely different outlook to your body and listening to your body and not trying to argue with every feeling that you have. Um, in this regard, I'm kind of really inspired by the eating disorder recovery community where um, when someone's developing a sense of intuitive eating, you've been ignoring your body's hunger cues for an incredibly long time. So just learning to listen to your hunger and taking that hunger wherever it wants to go without judgment, without saying, Oh, I haven't worked out enough today to be hungry, you know, um, or to want chocolate, just letting it go. Um, I think that approach is really important. It's so far from um, the way most of us organize our days because of our jobs. Um, so I think it would really mean totally reorienting what the workplace looks like. We're in a better moment for that than ever before because of work from home options, but we're also in some ways in a worse place than ever before because it's like you never leave work. So you never listen to your, to your hunger and boredness. Um, but I think that's what ultimately the goal is of, of um, kind of rethinking self, self-care in terms of what am I going to say no to? What don't I feel like doing? Um, what are ways that I'm trying to meet some societal standard that I don't actually care about? Um, and can I really listen when I feel annoyed, irritated, tired, whatever it is, and honor that instead of beating myself up over it? I like that. I mean, and I mean, I think what your example really 
highlights too is that, you know, the way in which self-care and wellness has kind of been commodified, it's really about the presentation of it. And, you know, what you're pointing to is really, it's less about, I mean, it's less about the presentation. Yeah, it might show that you're taking care of yourself, but it's really about the um, the inner landscape and the inner relationship to how you're caring for yourself, how you're listening to your needs. And, and again, I think that the thread that I continue to keep hearing is it's about reorienting yourself around your own internal values, needs, and wants, and distancing yourself um, from, you know, as much as you can from what the expectations are, the societal expectations are around productivity and, you know, how you're, how you're gaining or, or losing worth as a result of that. Um, and I understand, you know, from, um, you know, from some of the things that you've written and, and talked about, I mean, your understanding of how this is tied to, you know, um, industrialization and, and slavery. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so systemic that I, you know, there are multiple different intersections and layers that each of us are, are sitting within that allows us, um, different levels of responsibility as well as availability to making these various, uh, changes within our lives. Absolutely. And I think breaking what breaking out of it looks like is going to vary for each person um, and based on that baggage that they are that they're living with under this. Right. So, you know, there's uh, Trisha Hershey of the Nap Ministry, who is all about talking about rest as liberation for especially black women, though, like she produced, she produces writing and content that's under the like understanding of like the legacy of slavery has tainted everyone's relationship to their bodies. It's this traumatic event and everyone needs rest very fundamentally. And that's that that's where it kind of needs to begin in her kind of perspective. Um, I also am am really um, inspired by um, there's an autistic writer and um, sex educator um, Stevie Lang, who's been talking, um, I think it was like over the summer that they kind of started doing writing about the fact that, um, for a lot of autistic people, which I, I also am autistic, self-care doesn't necessarily look like rest. Rest For a lot of us, it looks like engaging with our special interests, the topics and activities that we're really obsessive about. Like when you're like really, and this is true of people with ADHD too, sometimes if you have a topic that you're right now really obsessive about, it actually can be an act of self-care to go, all right, I'm going to make a Wikipedia table about all of my favorite Pokemon because the table on the current Wikipedia is trash and I'm going to stay up. (laughs) I'm going to stay up all night making this awesome table and I'm doing something that like society would still see as frivolous. It's work, but it's about something silly and not impressive. And so that can be self-care too. Um, So that's, that's a thing that, um, that I also want to highlight that like, even the idea of what self-care is and what it looks like is being imposed on you from the outside. And sometimes you have to think, okay, do I actually want a bubble bath or do I want to play Call of Duty all night long or like Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> right. It, it, it might be both, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really about, I mean, I, I, I think that even from like, it makes me remember too, um, that even from like a hormonal perspective that, that what we need from the from the outside might, I mean, some people need rest. Some people like, you know, like I know for me when I'm, when I'm, when I'm overwhelmed and I've had enough, like I need to sleep. 
You know, I just need to be like, that's, that's how I, that's how I get my, my rest. But like, you know, my husband, when he's overwhelmed and he's at his top, like he needs to go for a run. And like, you know, from like the perspective of self-care, like we're doing the same thing, but in two totally different ways. And, you know, his, I think his way would be considered more productive, if you will, right? The exercising and, and all of that, where, you know, for me, like as I'm sleeping, I'm actually processing. There's, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who processes a lot and I read a lot. I take in a lot of information. And so, you know, in addition to like writing in various different ways, I also process when I sleep. And so I think that that's also something, you know, to, I mean, each of us, each of us process information in different ways. We need different outlets um, in order to just give ourselves that, that break. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I appreciate that perspective. Um, Yeah. One of the things too, and I wonder if you run up against this, um, you know, just in academia that, that um, there's this idea, and this is maybe also an activism as well, that there's this idea that we have to kind of be experts in, in everything, you know, have to kind of, um, you know, just kind of know everything. And I'm just wondering, you know, like how, how do you see, you know, when we're sort of reading and, and, and constantly, you know, in that place of like, um, taking in a lot of information and, and data points and things like that, um, you know, how information can even overload us and what that might, you know, how you can kind of contextualize that within the laziness lie as well. Yeah, I think that's an underrecognized facet of the laziness lie for a lot of people. The pressure to constantly be learning, to constantly be very well read on every issue, to have an opinion on every issue um, that's already crystallized, to constantly be following the news. And this um, idea that if you're not doing all of those things, you're a bad person and socially irresponsible um, and intellectually lazy and all those things. Um, In academia, it definitely takes this form where people are so unwilling to admit when they don't know something. That's, I feel like the flavor that I see it take the most in academia, even starting out really early in their careers. I just remember even when I was getting trained in, in um, just teaching, like how to be a professor, like people were so afraid to admit to their students, oh, I don't know the answer to that question. And, and when you're afraid to admit that you don't know the answer to a question, you don't get to model for your students the the skills of here's how I go about finding information and digesting it when I don't know the answer. And as a scientist, it's really counter to the whole idea of what science is supposed to be, which is tentative, open to revision, um, serving the public interest. So for us to act like we know everything um, or that knowledge is kind of set in stone is just really against the whole philosophy, supposedly, of what we're supposed to be doing. (laughs) Um, And then and academia has so many workplace and worker rights issues, just the fact that we use graduate students for very, very cheap labor and justify it by saying, we're teaching you, we're giving you an education. And it's true, I did learn a lot of things in graduate school, but I had no protections as a worker. I had, I supposedly was supposed to work 20 hours per week, but there was no there was no one keeping track of that. And if I was asked to do more than 20 hours a week, there's nothing I could do to say no, right? Um, so that's that's a very um, pervasive cultural problem there. 
um, and then kind of leaving academia and, and talking bigger picture, though this is an academic problem as well, we have more information now than any other time in human history. Uh, and that includes a lot of junk data um, because the amount of information on the internet that is created is um, is exponential. So it just keeps growing and growing um, at an accelerating rate. And so we take in more than than people did, you know, we take more in a day than people did in a week in the 80s. It's just, and that's very stressful. Um, like you said, you need time and sleep to process information. Um, the process of really breaking down a new, let's say, news article and thinking about, okay, how do I reconcile this fact with the things that I already know and believe? And what comes next if this is something that's happening you know, in the economy or in the healthcare system, what what do we do next about this? How do I feel about this? Um, that stuff all takes time and slowness. And if you're just constantly being bombarded or bombarding yourself with information, you don't get to go deeper. And your memory of what you've consumed is poorer. Your ability to scrutinize real new, reputable news from um, from conspiracy theories is not is degraded. Uh, it's easier for you to fault for scams. Um, and, and you're also just physiologically anxious. I think we've all had the experience in this past year of being on, being on your phone too late into the night and then not being able to sleep. Yeah. Uh, and all this, and all the zoom, you know, even though the zoom has offered such a beautiful platform for being able to do things like this and, and to really, you know, uh, communicate in real time across the world, it also, you know, I mean, Zoom fatigue wasn't a thing, you know, until this this last year, you know. Right. Yeah. The just the number of social demands being made of us can just because you're just always at home and you can just always up a, open up a new Zoom window. It's like unending um, and so stressful. Um, so, yeah, in the book, I try to really stress to people that you're not actually a irresponsible person for saying, I need to slow way down on this. That's actually the mark of being a more responsible citizen. Like if you're worried about not being active enough or engaged enough on an issue, um, it's a industry, a news media industry problem that we have constant information and a social media problem that we have constant information. It's not because we actually have like some obligation as citizens to constantly be taking information in. And what we know from um, decades of research at this point that dates back to when the 24-hour news cycle and 24-hour news channels really started is that if people consume too much negative news, they actually become more passive and more fearful and less politically engaged. So setting limits is actually the empowering and I think like ethically superior thing, because if you, if you care about being involved in, in issues that matter in the world, you can't be shell-shocked all the time. Right. Yeah. You need to be able to critically think about your situations and the ways in which you're engaging in the world and, and what actions are going to perhaps have the most impact, you know. Um, I'm curious, you know, since you're kind of you're sort of going that way a little bit, you know, just around how... Um, and I guess it can go both ways, this question, but, you know, how can we be good activists in the world, you know, without kind of succumbing to this laziness line? I think you spoke to that a little bit in this, in that last, um, in, in that last answer, but maybe you could speak to this a little bit more specifically. 
Yeah. So the first thing I would say, and this is true of the laziness lie and battling it in general, make sure that you're giving yourself enough credit for all of the things that you're doing. So a lot of things that we don't consider capital A activism are still materially helping people in your community, being a support person for people in your life who are vulnerable uh, in whatever way, um, educating people in your life by having just casual conversations with them that are not contentious, but are actually like, okay, let's talk about how we both, you know, feel about white supremacy and the weird, uncomfortable feelings that arises in us. And like, let's do it from a position of let's both actually talk about it and reflect rather than I'm going to change your mind and change your actions after one conversation, because that's just not how, <laughs> how human how change works. works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's just not a fair uh, standard to put on anyone. Um, and when people feel that they, they shut down anyway. Um, so, so giving yourself credit for every small thing that you do that is making the world a better place. One example of this that I often give is my sister who, um, was not a super politically engaged person. She's um, 27, I think. Uh, yeah, she's about to be 28. Uh, and uh, had only voted for the first time in this last election. But she's also an athletic trainer at a school in a rural area uh, that is, because of their athletic program, more racially diverse than than the, the area would normally be in Ohio. And she is someone who she hears all this locker room conversation and she's constantly shutting down racism. She's constantly shutting down homophobia. Her office is a safe space that girls at the school go to to ask questions about things that they can't ask most of their teachers about, like serious, you know, relationship issues and like sexual health questions. She's doing activism in my book. She, she is making life a better place for black kids, queer kids, women, all these people in this rural, very religious area. Um, and that is way more impactful uh, a lot of the times than a lot of the things that I do that are more showy, like whatever, you know, action it is that I, you know, go to or help organize or whatever it is. Um, so, so looking for those small opportunities and really valuing those, I think is really important. And I think it also helps us build a more sustainable activism because, if you're fighting against a huge problem and you never feel like you're making a dent in it, psychologically, that is very demotivating. People just don't, people just can't stick it with something like that um, for the most part. So instead of thinking about how am I going to end climate change, um, first take some space to mourn the fact that you're not going to like end it. There are going to be losses and damage that we're going to have to deal with. Um, and it's okay to like really feel that fear and sadness and then think about, okay, what can I do in my community to help people who are going to be impacted by this? What can I do to support um, indigenous people in my area who are growing plants in traditional ways, small things where I can see, hey, here's this native community garden and I helped make this possible or I helped support it um, or fund it or whatever it is um, because those things are those things are important and we're just small humans. We can't save the world individually, but we can do these small things that are rewarding and sustainable um, that align with our values. It's a really important point. I think, you know, um, just considering everything that we've been talking about and, you know, the 
what you present in your book around, you know, us feeling like we have to be doing and present, you know, doing these huge things in order for us to have value that I think it, I mean, what I heard you say is that the importance of, of valuing all of the little things that we do and to not overlook those things as something that's just like, oh yeah, I just, I just did that. Or that's just a small thing, but to really recognize that those small things could actually turn into something or actually they don't even have to turn into something more. They are enough. Right. Right. It's, it's like all of that is, is enough. Um, which I think is, I don't, I don't think you can say that, um, too many times for people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of guilting messages that people encounter and it comes from a place of trauma, right? People are really traumatized by so many injustices and systemic problems in our society. So they go, well, what are you doing about this? I'm, I'm doing all this work. Um, is everybody else doing enough? And it, it, resentment and guilting, I've noticed almost always comes from a place of someone who is doing too much and carrying too much and not having that seen. So the solution to that is not to cave necessarily to that pressure and to hold everyone to this standard of, okay, activism is my new part-time job and I have to spend X, Y, Z um, hours per day or week doing all these things. It's to kind of really say, okay, none of us individually can undo this. We are all really suffering. Um, and that suffering can take a lot of different forms. And obviously, some people are, are more structurally oppressed than others, certainly. Um, and being mindful of that is important. But um, really looking at what can I do to make my neighbor's life better? Who, you know, in my neighborhood can I, can I check up on? Or what small organizations can I help build political power? Or who can I just have a conversation with to like learn more about what their life is actually like and what they actually want? Because none of the groups that we're trying to advocate for or when we're advocating for ourselves, we're not monoliths. So a lot of times what, you know, advocating for, um, I don't know, indigenous people in your neighborhood might look very different from how it looks, you know, what, what it looks like from here, me here in Chicago might look very different from California, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, just as I know we're starting to get, we're nearing the end of our, of our hour. And, um, so I want to kind of see if you can speak a little bit more to, and I know you've talked about this in so many different ways, but maybe this is maybe some of the more, um, you know, kind of maybe poignant parts that you want to bring up here at the end around, you know, what we can do or what people can do to really fight back against this, this lie of laziness, like what, you know, what would you say or some of the, like if someone is saying, okay, I want to start now. I want to start taking some steps to, um, to change my relationship to the laziness lie. What would you say would be some good first steps? Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I think, and this connects to what we were just talking about, I think, um, compassion and practicing it for others sometimes makes it way easier for us to be gentle with ourselves. And also it obviously has these massive societal ripple effects of making other people's lives easier, which is really important. Um, so learning and making a practice of slowing down when you feel just dismay at someone's actions and you immediately want to write them off as it's because they're this kind of person to just kind of okay, all right, I had that little internal temper tantrum and that's totally fine and natural to initially respond to someone who's disappointed me or somebody who's done something that's dismaying to go, oh, they're a horrible person. 
okay, I did that. What could be the broader context that is explaining this? Why is this person, you know, if they're sharing lots of misinformation online, what fears do they have that have manipulated them into thinking, you know, they need to protect their their children from this imaginary cult or whatever it is? Like, what are they going through? Like, and how lonely might they be that they're getting, you know, kind of indoctrinated with that information as an example? Or what happens to me in my work a lot is if I hear a coworker complaining about a student kind of in a non-judgmental way reflecting, oh, it sounds like they're really going through a lot or like, oh, that must be, that must be really stressful for them if they're, you know, five weeks behind on assignments. It's good they emailed you. They probably were really scared to email you, you know, not telling somebody else how to, that they're a bad person for calling that student lazy. Right, right. Just kind of slowly modeling the skills because nobody's a bad person for having internalized this stuff. Um, It's very natural and we all have it. Um, So modeling that that compassion uh, and curiosity and humility, starting to apply it a little bit more to yourself. Um, I'm a big fan of like looking at your pet and noticing that like your pet has worth to you no matter what they're doing. You know, yes. my my pet chinchilla has not done a productive thing in his life and he's perfect, you know. Nature, I think, is really good at helping us kind of remember that stuff. Um, and, and yeah, and then thinking about what are the moments in my life where I felt the most alive and aligned with my values and and how can I make a life that has more of that? So some of those are small steps. Some of those are kind of more bigger existential things that we'll always have uh, to deal with. But, you know, it's a process. Yeah. Well, and I love that you talk about compassion and and curiosity because those are, those are two uh, components that I often talk about with students around, you know, because, it, you know, I see as students feel really judgmental about themselves and about their processes and the way in which their work, whether or not they're doing something that's related to their research or they're doing something that's, you know, kind of more of a um, a practice, right? Like a, a practice that they're learning, um, some sort of like somatic practice or, you know, transpersonal practice or whatever, that it's so easy for the for the judgments and the critical thoughts to come in. And it's, there really is something that shifts um, qualitatively when you shift into a place of curiosity. And instead of, you know, just creating a judgment that this is the way things are, but to get curious about what's happening, what that experience is, whether it's for yourself or for somebody else, it opens up such a broader range of possibilities. And it and it also gives space. It gives space to be less reactive and, and more to be in that place of like, how do I want to respond to this? Or, or what is a way that would be appropriate to respond to this? You know, and, and of course, depending on your position in relationship to another person, you know, that response might look different, but I really appreciate that you, um, that you brought those two components in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as educators, we have to do a lot to kind of drop those walls that keep students from telling us those things like curiosity combined with kind of showing that we're actually a safe person that it's, and that is real curiosity. It's not, why can't you do this? It's like, how can we do things differently? What are what are the things that I'm asking of you that are not making sense or that are not possible? Um, and I think 
at different places where I've taught, they've had different cultures and some of them have had more kind of toxic workaholic shaming kind of cultures than others. And in those places, I had to really, um, to an appropriate amount, be um, vulnerable with my own students or kind of acknowledge, you know, here are things that I struggle with. Or, you know, if we're talking about mental health stigma, I'm going to tell you that, like, here we are in this psychology class talking about mental health stigma. And I'm going to tell you that people, that there are some people that believe that people with mental illnesses or disabilities shouldn't be psychologists. And it's, um, and it's a really damaging view. And I'm, you know, and I'm a, a case of why that's, that's not true and why it's very important for there to be people who are neurodiverse in this career. Mm, absolutely. And once you say something like that, then students will start kind of like opening up to you and saying, um, Hey, you know, I was actually skipping this. It, like, these are things that are happening that happened to me. Like, Hey, I've actually been skipping your class because I'm, I'm in an eating disorder, like day treatment program. And it's, I'm just so exhausted just processing all of this stuff and like rethinking my whole approach to food that sometimes I just can't be around people especially after lunchtime. And it's like, oh, okay. Now that I, I, I like, thank you for trusting me with that information. I know not every professor would handle it right. Um, and let's, let's talk about what trigger warnings do you need for course material? Like what, what can we do when you do need to skip class? Like all of these things. Um, but most students have been, and most people have been burned so many times that it takes a while to extend that. Like you can tell me your context thing. Yeah, and to and then to really feel that they can be heard in that. Yeah. yeah. Um. It just this is more of a personal question, and um, I'm just curious about you know since you've since you've gone down this path of of research and and writing this book, I'm curious about what is you know maybe one or a couple of the most um the more significant things that have changed for you, um, in relationship to to laziness. Oh, gosh. Um, I always feel like such a hypocrite talking about this stuff because it's still so hard. <laughs> so I feel like uh, I've had a few key moments in my life where I've gone, okay, this is not sustainable. I need to really change course. Like deciding after finishing grad school, okay, I'm not going to apply to tenure track jobs. I'm not going to be on that grind. I can't do it. Um, I'm going to do consulting. I'm going to teach classes here and there, and I'm going to do my writing like that. That was a big moment for me. And I've had these other moments along the way, like after I started working on this book of like, okay, I need to stop saying yes to all these committee invitations that I get because <laughs> writing is the thing that's important. Um, but it's like whack-a-mole. I don't know. I have still so many rules in my head about who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing and things I feel bad about that. I just keep have to go keep have to go at them and say like, okay, who is that me? Or is that like, <laughs> is that society that's telling me this? What fears and like stigmas are, are motivating this? Um, so I think it's kind of one of those things. It's a little bit of a wormhole or, or like telescoping maybe is, is what I'm trying to say, where the farther you get, the more you realize you, you have to go. And so it kind of, you can feel kind of stuck in doing it, but, um, but I try not to be a perfectionist about being the best <laughs> and unlearning the laziness lie uh, and try to just uh, know that these things will keep popping up and, and see it as like, here's a n whole new way that I can get free each time um, on a good day. <laughs> Yeah. That's I mean, honest. I just, I mean, I love that because I think sometimes when you've, you know, you, when you've written a book and, you know, this is, this is an area of research that you've gone deep into, you know, sometimes people can think like, 
she's got it all figured out or they've got it all figured out and 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 they do this perfectly all the time and so you know it's really good i think for a lot of people to hear that even though you have you have the landscape it's still something that you have to work on every single day yeah that's a thing that i hate about most self help books it's like this very the voice is so like of of the writer is so detached and like ascended and maybe it's because i'm a researcher rather than a, a practitioner that i feel more comfortable being like i'm a mess it's fine <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah let's just all work on this together yeah yeah Oh, well, I've really appreciated this time um, being in conversation with you, Devin. Great. Thank you so much, Kendra. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, The website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.